morning, everybody. Um, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I know that for some folks, it's maybe uh, not the easiest time of the year, but um, I really love it. Um, we, uh, in our family, we switch back and forth uh, between our house and my brother and sister-in-law's house every year. And, you know, it's a little bit selfish that we do that, but we kind of said when we moved back to Florida that we wanted all of our family to come to us. And so, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. We hosted this year, and I can't take a lot of credit for that. Kim um, did most of the work, um, but it was awesome. And we had a, a little bit smaller crew, but just love how we're able to kind of just recreate all the traditions that we've built together as a family and kind of meld those together. And just, you know, over the course of our time being married, it's just, you know, really become a really fun time for us. And the other reason why I like it is because Thanksgiving kind of, uh, brings in the transition from fall to, to Christmas, which I'm good with fall being done and we'll go to Christmas. Although um, when Jonathan was walking in this morning, he said, man, it's it's not really cold here like it was where we were up in the mountains. And I agree. I think it's uh, it feels kind of cold. It's kind of dreary outside, but I wish it was a little cooler in here. Um, so if I haven't met you, I'm Brian Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at, at TCC. And if this is your first time with us this morning, thanks for uh, Thanks for choosing us. Um, we've got a, a gift bag um, in the back that has a little bit of information about the church. Um, so make sure to pick one of those up on your way out, and um, we just love to connect with you. Um, today, as Kim read, we're going to be in John chapter 15. Um, but before we jump in uh, to God's Word, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have the privilege to serve you, Lord, and that we have a unifying connection in you through Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we work through your word this morning, that you open our hearts and minds uh, to, to know your truths and become connected to you um, in, in the most satisfying way that we could ever imagine, Lord. You have so much that you have for us that only requires for us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to abide in him, Lord. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today we're going to be continuing our study in the book of John. Um, you remember the kind of the first half of, of the gospel, we were talking about, um, you know, how John discloses all of the things, all the miraculous things and, and, and words that Jesus spoke to help us have belief in who he is. And now in the second part of the gospel, we're transitioning into the glorification of Christ. So in chapter 15, we're going to be taught, we're still going to be in the upper room. The disciples are, are with Jesus, breaking bread, um, and he's about to go um, away. We're, you know, the night before that he's crucified. And last week, we learned a lot about how God's love is strikingly different than our love. Um, the love that we ex that we experience here, and it's more that God is not trying to do anything. He's not a technique or a method or or something to get something out of us. It's really who His character is. It describes who God is. Is the love that He has for us is completely unconditional. It's unique. It's relentless and steadfast. As we finished up chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples that He's leaving to go somewhere, and they can't follow. And Jonathan talked about how. Like that must have been heartbreaking for them, right? They've given up everything uh, to follow him, and now he's saying that he's leaving, and they can't go with him. And so 
Jesus does a great thing in chapter 14 where he comforts them by providing this beautiful picture of hope. Um, and I'm not sure how many of you guys had a chance to meet with your small groups this week. I know that there was a lot going on, but hopefully you had a chance to, um, to look at chapter 14 and read and reflect on what God was trying to say here because it's really cool. He explains that he, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life, and only through him um, can you come to the Father. He tells them, don't be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. He says that he's preparing a place in his Father's house for us. So he's reassuring them that they will be with him again and with the Father, and that he's coming back for us. That must, I mean, that must have felt just amazing, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're troubled, but then he's saying, hey, I'm coming back. And he also promises the coming of the Holy Spirit as a gift from the Father in his name. He tells the disciples that through the Holy Spirit, they'll find the power and knowledge to continue the work of his church in his absence. The Lord said first, he'll grant them the Spirit, and then by the Spirit, they'll have the necessary spiritual knowledge and spiritual insight to make sense of what Jesus has said to them. Remember, they're kind of confused at this point. I mean, I love the, the depiction of the, the disciples in, in the book of John and other, and other Gospels because it, it, it shows so much humility. Like, these guys are just like us. They're like, what, what is God saying? I don't, I don't necessarily understand it, but God is saying that he'll send his helper, the Holy Spirit, to be able to help us and help the disciples understand what God is trying to say. And then on top of it, of course, having brought them back these things back to their mind, um, it'll be by the same spirit that through him, he'll preserve his inspired word through these people. And so similar to today, the spirit continues to work in us and helps us to understand what God would have for our lives. And as I've said, reading through chapter 14, we see that the disciples are really struggling. They're just struggling with trying to grasp what Jesus is instructing, and they're also struggling with where he's planning to go. But what's important to recognize in chapter 14, and not only in chapter 14, but also in chapters 15 through 17, is that Jesus is preparing the disciples to function in his absence by relying on his power, his authority, his word, and his name. These were Jesus' chosen representatives for his church. They were commissioned to serve his interests, and chiefly, that is to bring glory to God. Now, there's a lot of different ways that glory comes to God, but for these disciples and the church that, that Jesus is, gonna, is going to build, they are, they are so important to what the mission is that he's going to do all of these miraculous things to bring all these people to him. But he's not going to be a hands-off manager. Through the Holy Spirit, he's going to be able to exert his influence on his church. And therefore, they must love him by following his instructions and commandments. I also want us to have in mind what Jesus says in the first part of chapter 16 because it points to why. Why is he presenting this information to them? You'll be studying this in your small groups this week, but I looked ahead the questions, uh, at the questions and this particular point's not one of them, so I'm not, not uh, stealing any of your thunder, Jonathan. But if we look at, uh, at John 16, uh, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. 
And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. From this, it's clear that Jesus is, pri- is, is trying to prevent the disciples from stumbling. He knows that this coming persecution that they're going to experience after he departs, and he knows that people that are facing that type of severe persecution, which I don't think that we can really conceptualize how that must have felt, but that it's probably a good guess that you know people are going to fall away, that they're going to start compromising their beliefs. And so he's teaching in chapter 15 is meant to prepare the disciples to withstand these trials in his absence. In both 14 and 16, Jesus is instructing his disciples about staying connected to him. It's important to note that Jesus is also speaking, speaking these things to the disciples. So it, only depl- it only applies to believers. I'm emphasizing these details because um, as I started to prepare for this, I've recognized that there's a considerable amount of theological debate about parts of John 15 and um, some of the interpretations of what Jesus is trying to teach here. And I found that the context of 14 and 16 and, and, and 17 helped to ground my understanding. And just to be open and honest, for, for me to stand up and, and speak to these things, um, I'm cautious because I don't want to be representing these words in a way that is disagreeable. Um, I want to be speaking truths. But I want to encourage you, as we said before, um, to reach your own conclusions by meditating over the Scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's what I've been doing the past um, several weeks, and um, I'd encourage you to do the same. So with all that out of the way, we're going to start unpacking John 15, 1 through 17, verse by verse. And so the first thing that, um, that, that, is said, that Jesus says here in verse 1 is that, <clears throat> I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now this is the last of seven times throughout the book of John where Jesus makes an I am something statement. In each of these cases, he's using this metaphor to describe something known to the physical world um, to make a point about something about spiritual reality. So just as a reminder, he said the following things. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so now Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. What in the world is he talking about? So throughout the Old Testament... Grapevines are one of the plants that are used to describe the nation of Israel, to symbolize Israel. And I want to look at one of these instances in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, where God describes his vineyard. So turn there with me. I'm cheating, I marked them. Um, all right, so he says, um, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? 
when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what, what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant pleasing, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God has taken all of this care to bring his people out of suffering and into a place where they can thrive. He's cleared all the impediments. He's given them everything that they need to be fruitful. He cares and he loves for them. And what happens after God sets all this up for them? They produce nothing of spiritual value for him. This is what is meant by wild grapes. Think sour grapes. This is the picture that we get of God's people. God has done everything right. Set them up. They just can't help themselves. And they mess it up over and over and over again. We see it throughout the Old Testament over and over again. So Jesus is saying now, I'm the true vine. There was this other vine. It didn't produce what it was supposed to produce, but I am the one who will produce the fruit through God's people that was supposed to be produced. And so then he says, my father is the vine dresser. Now, I know very little about gardening. Um, I would I would honestly say that um, I would kill most most living plants if given the opportunity. But um, so I, I looked up specifically what a vine dresser was, and the definition that I found was a vine dresser is defined as a person who prunes, trains, and cultivates vines, caring for them on a daily basis. So let's let's go back and read John 15 verses two through five. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, i got to confess, um, this set of verses for me over the last couple of weeks has been extremely challenging, um, and I'm about to tell you why, but um, look at what Jesus is saying here. He's certainly drawing parallels between himself as the vine and the Father as the vine dresser and we as the branches of the vine. And it's a vine dresser's job to get everything that he can, um, get the maximum amount of fruit production out of, out of a plant, out of a vine. And you expect that, like any gardener, in addition to, to watering and fertilizing, that they're going to cut away and remove parts of the bush that are impeding that bush from generating as much fruit as possible. That could be disease or dead branches or, or just things that aren't producing fruit. All this is so that the rest of the vine is free to do its job. And of course, apart from the vine, the branches cannot bear fruit. If branches aren't connected to a plant, they aren't receiving any nourishment and will die. That's the imagery of this metaphor. But with regards to its spiritual application, what is Jesus saying about the branches being taken away in verse 2? So verse 2, it says, Every branch in me 
Jesus, that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And we'll get to the second part in in a little bit, but I've really struggled with it because it says in me. It would have been much more convenient if that phrase was left out completely. It's confusing because it seems like John is contradicting all of the other statements that Jesus made earlier in the gospel um, that clearly assures the eternal security of believers. And we've looked at all of these, but I'm going to give you a few examples. So um, in John 3, 16 through 17, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order for the world, so that the world might be saved through him. And then in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have, not, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And that the Father gives me, and sorry, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from the heavens, not to do my own will, but, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but rise, up on the la- but rise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that every, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then finally in, in John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So to me, it's clear that Jesus is saying that he's never going to lose a single person that God has given to him. That's extremely good news, right? Stop the sermon there. Um, That would be good. But this is why I struggled, I, and I continue to dig deeper because it says here that, you know, branches in me that do not bear fruit, he takes away. And so I found out very quickly that I'm definitely not the only um, person who is struggling or has struggled with this to make sense of this passage. One of the theories that I've seen preached um, pretty regularly at this point is that the translation of this verse is misrepresented in English. So the Greek word that's used for takes away is aero. And this is one of those Greek words where it has multiple meanings. And so the translators would have had to deduce from the context of what's going on what was intended to to take it from Greek to English. So this word in particular can mean to take away or remove, as it's stated here, or it can be to elevate, raise up, or lift up. So some people make the argument that this translation should have been lifts up instead of takes away. Verse 2 would read, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. That really fits the context of the metaphor, doesn't it? It's common practice for vine dressers to raise immature vines off the ground so that they can bear fruit. It's a super convenient lens to look through. Um, And this metaphor would work out just fine. But also Jesus, sorry, also fruit-producing plants don't produce fruit to harvest immediately. It would make so much sense if Jesus was saying that he's going to raise up immature believers 
through mature believers and, and you know, being with those people, absolutely a way that God uses the community of believers today. Iron sharpens iron. The problem I have with all this is that it all hinges on the assumption that the translation was wrong. I looked at the 50-plus different translations of this in English, and every single one of them uses some form of takes away or removes. I don't think the translators got it wrong. Is it possible? Sure. Likely? No. In the Gospel of John, there are 30 instances of this verb, and only eight of those are used in the lifts-up context. So there are plenty of examples where decisions were made not to use lifts-up because it wouldn't be contextually correct. And remember here that Jesus is using a metaphor to describe his point. I think we need to be careful not to extend the metaphor outside of its intended purpose just to make it neatly fit our narrative. All metaphors eventually break down, and this one is no different. So assuming the translation is correct, and it means takes away, and also that Jesus is not talking about the loss of salvation, how do we interpret this? What I believe Jesus is saying here is that the Father will remove all of the dead wood that is impeding the vine from producing fruit. And this includes removing professed Christians from his church who do not give evidence by their lives that they are truly united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he's talking to the 11 remaining disciples here after Judas has gone away. In chapter 13, John describes Jesus identifying Judas as the one who will betray him by telling another disciple in verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And then in verse 27 says, after he, Judas, has taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And then finally in verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. God wasn't surprised or duped by Satan here. I mean, that, that's not what's happening. Judas was a fraud from the beginning. He never believed that Jesus was the Savior. But he was part of Jesus' core group of followers. God hardened his heart or allowed his heart to be hardened and allowed Satan to have him so he could fulfill his own plan. God removed the deadwood for his glory. So the first thing I think he's doing is he's warning his disciples to be wary of people that appear to be connected to the vine but are not. Those are branches that are dead and will never produce fruit. He's saying that there will be people that claim to believe but do not actually put their faith and trust and dependence in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God is completely sovereign, and he's going to make sure his works are accomplished. So we don't have to fear that those people are going to indwell and ruin God's plan. So the, the second half of, of verse 2, he says, Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. These are the other types of branches, the ones that do produce fruit. And he says that the vine dresser will continue to prune them so that they produce more fruit. So pruning, pruning, we all know what pruning is. Pruning is a well-recognized gardening technique that is used to make sure that plants remain healthy. And so towards the end of any sort of a growing cycle, the gardener is going to prune off the branches um, that have given that bared fruit, and the idea is that they are going to come back stronger in the next season. So for a fruit-producing plant, this is really important because the branch will become stronger and will be capable of producing even more fruit. This is what Jesus says God will do with us when he prunes so that he can generate even more fruit through us. 
but pruning is cutting, right? Um, doesn't it hurt when you when you cut yourself? Um, spiritual pruning is no different. It's going to be painful. It's going to be tests and trials, uncomfortable circumstances, challenges of one kind or another, and discipline. For the eleven disciples, Jesus is preparing them for very, for the very real prosecution that will result from their work after his departure. They'll be cast out and killed for their service to the Lord. For us, it may be anything that the Lord is doing to get us out of our comfort zone so that we may be strengthened spiritually. I know that many of you are struggling with personal sickness or the sickness of a loved one. Others are dealing with job loss and financial strain. Others are experiencing broken relationships and marriages. We prayed about this last week. It's all painful, isn't it? And sometimes it's even seemingly unbearable. Um, But Jesus says, have faith, abide in me. Experiences like these provide opportunities for us to rely on and trust Jesus more deeply. He wants us to understand that the Father is in control of it all. Right? Nothing is happening by, uh, by mistake. Notice who receives this treatment, too. Believers who already produce fruit. The people who are the most faithful and the show the most obedience get the most attention from the Father. You never hear somebody say, man, I've never been closer to Jesus than uh, when the times when things were going really well. That's not a thing, right? It's always after some sort of a trial that God has pulled them through and people have relied on Jesus' strength where they can point back and give glory to him. Only he can give us that strength. We should look at these pruning experiences as a vote of confidence from God. Our hardships draw us deeper into deeper union with Christ. The Father takes away things from our life that are getting in the way of us realizing his glory, but it isn't without personal sacrifice or pain, and we all know that. We've all experienced that. So now Jesus is about to tell us how we actually get to bear this fruit. But before he does, he says this in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now it's obvious from this chapter so far that bearing fruit is, is the goal of a believer and that the Father prunes us to ensure that we continue to bear even more fruit. But Jesus wants his disciples and us to understand that this is a process of cleaning and pruning that is continuous, but it's not a prerequisite of salvation and righteousness through Christ. It's a product of our continued faith and dependence on him. Look at John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, be- whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's past tense. He said he passed. They've passed from death to life. Believers have already passed from death to life. We are already clean in the eyes of God because of Jesus' work on the cross and our belief in Christ. This isn't works-based theology, guys. Um, God isn't looking for us to check a bunch of things off of a list, 
plus believing in God to be able to gain his acceptance. It's not Jesus plus a whole bunch of things equals salvation. He's looking for our ready acceptance of continued cleansing and pruning as proof that we've already been cleansed and pruned through Christ. Again, the works are evidence of our dependence and unity on him. It's not something that we generate. Let's go to to 15 verses 4 through 6. This is where Jesus gets into how we bear fruit. Took me a little bit to get there, but we're here. Um, all right, so it says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So here it is. Jesus tells us to abide in him. Abide is used eight times in this chapter and 40 times in the Gospel of John overall. So what does abide mean? Abide means to stay in or remain in. This is how we bear fruit. Jesus makes it clear. We can't bear God's fruit without being connected to him by abiding in him. Just like a branch won't produce fruit without, being, without getting nutrients from the trunk, we produce nothing without him. That's really important with how we, we live our lives. Our dependence on God is the only way that we can do what God the Father desires for our lives. We don't get to do it ourselves. Philippians 4.13 says, the Apostle Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus basically says, says the same, here, same thing here but differently says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And by extension, we can deduce that we're not the actual producers of the fruit. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit that we participate. The good news is that if we continually receive, believe, and trust in Jesus, we have everything that we need. Our job is to connect with Jesus so that he can continue to produce the fruit in us that bring glory to the Father. Now, conversely, in verse 6, Jesus provides a stark warning of what's to come for those that don't abide in him. He says, those who don't abide in him are thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's a big deal. I'm sure that some of you get a little bit uncomfortable when you read that the result of not abiding is fire and burning. I don't know about you, but my mind immediately goes to, you know, Jesus pointing to hell and the eternity outside of communion with God for those that, are not true, un, that don't have true dependence on him. Is there anything that should be more concerning to us than where we're going to spend eternity? I don't, I don't think so. Yet, on a daily basis, we're consumed by the things of this world and what makes us feel good about ourselves. We need to desperately guard against these things. I'm preaching to myself here as much as I'm preaching to you. The love of money, the building up of worldly comfort and security, the bending of the gospel to meet societal norms. All these things are out of alignment with Christ. And it's the result of not abiding in him. Because if you're connected to him, there's no way that you would 
produce this type of outcome. So we must repent and continually redirect our worldly desires back to him by connecting to him. I know that what I just said is a little bit scary, right? Um, and it, it scares me to imagine a possibility of being separated from God for eternity. But thankfully, God encourages us to connect with him through prayer. He's given us this medium that we can connect with him through prayer. And I can't say that it's enough, but we don't have to be scared if we abide in Christ. Abide, abide, abide. He says it over and over and over again. Connect to me, and you will bear fruit. So let's read uh, verses 7 through 11. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We talked about that. Um, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, not these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. This is this is amazingly good news, guys. When we match our desires with God's desires, we can ask him for anything, and it'll be done. Every week, people drop prayer requests in the box. Um, and there's somebody in the church that writes one every week, and one of the things that she consistently asks us to pray for is the marriages at TCC and in our community. I think it's pretty safe to assume that this type of a prayer lines up with God's desires for godly marriages, right? On the other hand, I don't think that Praying for God to get you that big, new, shiny house or that brand new red Ferrari is going to work out very well because it's not a prayer that's rooted in your abiding faith. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray to the Father, he said, pray your kingdom come, your will be done, and lead us not into temptation. Jesus is teaching us to align our prayer to the desires of God and his will in our lives. And doing these things in the name of Jesus means acting in accordance with his will and his work. Those who abide in Christ and in his word are naturally able to know his will and act according to it. And in that close abiding, we can go to God confidently knowing that our wishes are Christ's wishes. This is a blanket promise for any abiding, uh, abiding disciple that as you raise up your petitions to God, Jesus will, will respond affirmatively because your, your petitions are spirit-inspired. In verse 8, Jesus adds that the Father is glorified when we're working closely with Jesus. Think about how much we can accomplish when we walk closely with him. Jesus emphasizes that producing good works to glorify the Father is what our lives as Christians is supposed to be about. We prove our belief in Jesus by living a fruitful, abundant life that brings glory to God. Jesus goes on to describe how closely he wants us to walk with him. Now, he models this after the closeness that he had with his father. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus says that he was loved for his obedience to the father. He was abiding in his father's love. Jesus made his goal abiding in his father's love. He was satisfied by just gaining approval from him and needing nothing more. The disciples didn't know it at this point, but Jesus was about to go and die on the cross because he was pleasing his father. 
I mean, he asked God, if there's another way, please. But your will be done. This is our model for abiding in Christ, having full dependence on him in a way that is, is completely unconditional. And obviously this is an unquestionably high bar, right? And while we know that this is the best and only course for our lives, the ones that it should take, we also know how hard it's going to be and how much sacrifice is going to be required. The enemy looks at this as an opportunity to put this lie in our head that we can't experience joy under these circumstances, that the course that the Lord prescribes is too hard and burdensome. We cannot succumb to this lie. We must persevere, and we do it through Christ. Christ says here, he reminds the disciples that abiding in him will bring them great joy. And then he also gives them a new commandment. If you read verses 12 through 17 to finish it out. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servants don't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I have commanded you, so that you will love one another. Jesus is encouraging us to enjoy the joy that it is to experience the Father. He wants us to understand that the joy that we will experience by abiding in him is infinite. Conversely, the joy that we try to manifest in ourselves throughout our own life is incomplete, it's inadequate. Jonathan last week used the word pathetic to describe our love in comparison to God's love. And this is the same sort of thing. We, we cannot experience what it feels like to just feel the amazing joy, infinite joy, love, and comfort that is in Christ based off of our own works. We just can't. How many times have you coveted something of this world or wanted to go and buy something and think, oh man, if I just got that one thing or did that one experience, that everything is just going to be so much better. I've done it. And almost every single time, maybe it was awesome when you went through it. But then it's over. It dies. It withers away. It's no longer, it's a memory. It's a figment. What God is saying here is that your dependence on on the Lord Jesus Christ and your connection through him to the Father will bring you the type of joy that never goes away. It's completely infinite. And we, we can't honestly fathom that. The best times that we can think of in our life will not compare to what it's like to sit at the, at the foot of the Father and his throne. We just cannot, we cannot contemplate what that feels like for us. But he wants desperately for us to experience what this joy, this full joy is like. And he's clear that it starts by keeping his commandments. That's kind of weird, right? Hey, do what I say, and then you know, you're going to have this joy. But that's because he's a good father. 
we discipline our kids, right? We love them. We want them to have what's best for them. That's why we do it. We don't do it out of anger or spite. God is doing the same thing here. He's commanding us to follow him so that we are connected to him and we have our desires meet his desires. The commandment to love one another as he loved us is certainly a lofty one. As we talked about last week, God's love is different from our love. Christ's model goes well beyond us being, you know, good people and loving our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. It's far greater than helping others in need and volunteering your time. That's pathetic. It's it's not even close. Jesus Jesus's love is magnitudes greater than that. Jesus is about to go to the cross and die for us here. Can you think of anything more loving than giving your life for somebody else? And that's just it. When Jesus tells the disciples that if they do what he commands, they are his friends and not servants, he's pointing to what's about to change on the cross. Jesus sacrificed his life so that all of us can can be forgiven and have a right relationship with our creator God. He says that Servants don't know what their master is doing. He's calling them friends because he shared with them all that he's heard from the Father so that they may share and enjoy the same intimate relationship with God as he does. Through Jesus' death, he's enabled a new way for humanity to experience God again, the way that God had originally intended it. He also says that he chooses and chases after us. He's the one who initiates the relationship, not us outside of anything that we deserve. We can't take credit for the things God does in our life either because it's not of our doing. We have no right to look at our life and say, look at all I accomplished. Give the glory to the one who's actually producing the fruit. Our only job is to abide and participate in God's plan through Christ. God has has destined everything in our lives to happen for his glory Joy and love should be the only natural response that we have. So in closing, I want to ask us a couple of questions. Are we abiding in Christ? Are there things in our lives that we need to be pruned so that we can have a deeper relationship with him? Are we satisfied just to please Christ? Do we crave his love more than the love of this world? will we make obeying him a greater goal than pleasing ourselves? Jesus says that if we will, then his love will abide in us and we will experience his infinite love, joy, and peace. Let me pray.